Hi everyone, it's good to be back with you again. I must just say that there is a film crew filming something outside my house today, so if there are a few more bangs and bumps in the background than usual, it's probably that. After quite a long break, we're coming back to the book of First Peter. Um, we almost finished the book last year, but then we were interrupted by Advent, Christmas, New Year. But we come back to finish First Peter chapter 5, which I hope to do over the next two, perhaps three weeks, because as always, there's a lot in these verses. We come today to First Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 to 4. Let me read the passage to you. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is God's word. I came across this little piece some time ago, which may be a good introduction to our topic today. The perfect pastor preaches exactly ten minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes 400 rand a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books and donates 300 rand a week to the parish. He is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humour that keeps him seriously dedicated to his parish. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. He also knows when somebody is sick and needs visitation even without anyone telling him about it. The perfect pastor always has time for parish council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any parish organization and is always out busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always at the church down the road. Today we come to an interesting passage of scripture because it's all about pastors. How in the world does a pastor preach on a passage that is essentially about himself? Why would I do this to myself? Well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, these verses are not just for pastors. Uh, Peter addresses elders, so there is a slightly wider audience here. He envisages that there will be a plurality of elders, an eldership team, rather than just a one-man show. Uh, within our own church, we have elders and pastors and pastors are simply full-time elders. Secondly, I do think it's worthwhile to use the description that Peter gives here as a measure against which to test pastors and teachers. 
So perhaps you're about to go off to university and you will be joining a new church. It's worthwhile, I believe, to keep Peter's words here in mind as you look at the various pastors in your new town. Thirdly, I believe that these verses apply to all of us to a certain extent. Remember back in chapter 2, Peter told all of us that we are a royal priesthood. He said that you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 4 how all of us have been given a gift to serve others. So I do think that these verses have a broader application to us all, especially if we have a particular role in the church, whether that's as a Sunday school teacher or life group leader or a deacon or an elder. And fourthly, of course, these verses do apply to me and to all pastors. And if perhaps I feel uncomfortable preaching on these verses, it may be helpful to remember that when Peter's letter was first read out in the congregations in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, the elders would have been sat there and would have heard Peter's instructions to them read out in front of the entire congregation. And that suggests a certain amount of accountability. The elders' job description is out there for everyone to scrutinize. But it also suggests a certain amount of congregational responsibility. As one pastor puts it, we all have a responsibility for the quality of leadership in our church. The congregation are to help the elders fulfill their job descriptions by caring for their elders, making it easy for them to do their job, and by praying for them. As the writer to the Hebrews puts in Hebrews chapter 13, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Well, having made those observations, let's have a look more specifically at what Peter says to pastors and elders, and Christians who find themselves in leadership positions. We'll look today at the elders' calling, the elders' manner, and the elders' motivation. Firstly, the elders' calling. Verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Just some preliminary thoughts here before we go to the main topic of the elders' calling. It's interesting to see that Peter himself models here what it means to be a pastor. Notice that he doesn't command these men and women, he appeals to them. He could have used his authority to be bold and command them. Instead, his pastor's heart leads him to gently plead with them. And he appeals as a fellow elder. He doesn't appeal as an apostle. He doesn't appeal as one to whom Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He's not speaking here as Pope Peter. 
He doesn't stand over these folk. Rather, he places himself alongside them. And thirdly, he appeals as a witness. The word witness here is literally martyr. I appeal as a witness, a martyr of Christ's sufferings. And it seems that Peter is saying a bit more than just that he had witnessed Christ's sufferings. He's saying that he shares in Christ's sufferings. Peter is writing to pastors who are serving in very difficult circumstances. When the church is being persecuted, it is the leaders of the church who are going to take the most flack. And Peter shows here then that he is not laying a burden on them that he's not willing to take upon himself. Also bear in mind that from the time of Jesus' resurrection onward, Peter had lived each day under the shadow of what Jesus had said to him in John chapter 21. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And John adds, Jesus said this to Peter to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Peter was already sharing in Christ's sufferings, and he knew that one day he would pay the ultimate price. He would die for his faith. And then one final observation. Notice that Peter uses three terms here that are actually interchangeable. To the elders, in Greek presbyteros, where we get our word presbyter. Be shepherds, the word pastor means shepherd serving as overseers, in Greek episkopos, where we get our word bishop. Now, don't get confused. Peter is using three words for the same person. The New Testament, in fact, describes a twofold leadership structure. You have elders slash pastors slash overseers who exercise spiritual leadership, and deacons who take care of the practical side of things, like organizing feeding programs. Some denominations see a three-tiered structure, bishops, elders, and deacons. I think that that's got practical value. Uh, in this system, pastors have pastors of their own in the form of bishops, but it's not really what the New Testament describes. And maybe just to say as well that while Baptists don't have bishops, it is possible within the local church to think that the pastor is the bishop and then you have elders and deacons. But pastors are really full-time elders, and it's probably a better practice to have a plurality of elders. Well, having looked at those interesting and necessary preliminary points, let's come back to the main point of the calling of the elder. What is it that elders and pastors and deacons and Christian leaders are to do? Peter says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. This is quite a job description, because you may remember that throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, God himself, is the one who is described as the shepherd. The great patriarch Jacob, from whom came the twelve tribes of Israel, at the end of his life speaks about the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Or more famously, in Psalm 23, we read, 
the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. The Old Testament does also describe kings and prophets and priests as shepherds of God's people, but they were always seen to be under-shepherds of the great shepherd, who was God himself. In fact, there's a very frightening chapter in the book of Ezekiel where God condemns the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, and he rejects them and says that from now on he himself will shepherd his people. Uh, Let me read some of that chapter to you because it describes negatively what shepherds, pastors, teachers, Christian leaders are called on to do positively. Ezekiel 34 This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost, You've ruled them harshly and brutally. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And if we turn to the New Testament, remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, which, by the way, is a clear statement that Jesus is God. Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. But Jesus continues, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So as Christian leaders, we have a tremendous responsibility to be like Jesus to those whom he has entrusted to us. And yet at the same time, it's vital that we recognize that this is God's flock. Verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, even the term overseer that Peter uses in this passage, he's used previously back in chapter 2, verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God is both the shepherd and overseer of his church. And so as one writer says, Good pastors are first and foremost sheep, and they know it and embrace it. Their first and most fundamental joy is not what God does through them as pastors, but what Christ has done and does for them as Christians. Or, as another writer puts it, the care of pastors for their flock will be proportional to their care for the Lord. Perhaps a good, concise description of what it means to be a shepherd of God's flock can be seen in Jesus' commission of Peter himself in John 21. Remember how after his resurrection, Jesus restores Peter, 
who when the heat was on had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. And listen to some of the things that Jesus says to Peter. This is Jesus' charge to all who serve in Christian leadership. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Follow me. So the elders calling, be shepherds of God's flock. But let's move on and look secondly at the manner in which elders are to exercise their calling, how elders are to do their work. And here Peter gives three sets of contrasts. He says, not that, but rather this, verses two and three, and we'll look at each of these in turn. Firstly, not obligation, but willingness. Verse 2, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. It may sound strange to us that there would be elders who are not willing to be elders, but remember that Peter's writing into a situation of persecution. As one commentator puts it, the responsibility of church office today has been too often trivialized. It's no more than a minor inconvenience that can readily be declined. But in countries where conversion to Christ is illegal and baptism brings a prison sentence, the office of the elder carries a different meaning. Facing persecution and even death for being a Christian may have led many of Peter's readers to be unwilling to be elders, but beyond that, I think there's a broader application of Peter's words here. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Peter is warning here against laziness. He's reminding us that being an elder is not a job. Rather, it is a calling. It can so easily degenerate into being just a job. Being a minister nowadays is a recognised occupation, and so ministers fall under the Basic Conditions of Employment Act. And because of that, they have to have job descriptions and working hours and leave and salaries and tax numbers and all sorts of other trappings that belong to the working world. And it can be so easy for pastors then just to tick the boxes and put in the hours without a willingness to genuinely serve God by serving others. It's possible to simply go through the motions without a genuine engagement of the heart. Francis de Sales was a Swiss clergyman who died in 1622, and he once said this, Nothing is so debilitating as the continual handling of the outside of holy things. And to my shame, I have to admit that in years gone by, I have found myself handling the outside of holy things, simply going through the motions, doing things because I have to, because it's my job. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives something of a motto for his pastoral ministry when he says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So not obligation, but willingness. 
Secondly, in terms of the manner of an elder's work, not getting, but giving. Verse 2 again, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Literally, Peter says, not greedy for dishonest gain. So there is a broader application than just money, as we will see. But certainly money is clearly in view here. Now, why should an elder not be greedy for money? Probably for many reasons, but let me mention one. From the earliest times, priests and prophets and later apostles and elders received material recompense for the spiritual work that they did. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And Jesus himself, uh, when he was sending out the 72 on a mission trip, said, Stay in the home of someone who welcomes you, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. There is no shame in receiving a salary as an elder or pastor, but there is a danger. It is possible, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to peddle the word of God for profit. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit, on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. In other words, it's possible to try and make as much money from the gospel as possible. And in the process, there's the very real danger of changing the gospel and making it more attractive so that it is easier to peddle. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God... And you speak not only of God's love, but of his holiness and wrath and judgment. You preach about hell and holiness and repentance. You're not going to be the most popular preacher in town. But preach only the nice side of the gospel, love and grace and mercy. Preach on topics that people want to hear about. Find a few novel ideas and perhaps a few secret practices, and you will have crowds and those crowds will bring their money. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this unholy, insidious, diabolical link between greed for money and false teaching. You see it again and again. In the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 3, God speaks about the prophets who lead my people astray. If one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If one does not, they prepare to wage war against them. Peter spends an entire chapter of his next letter, Second Peter chapter 2, speaking about false teachers. And at one point he says this, False teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. 
Paul writes to Timothy and warns him against those who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Again, Paul's little letter to Titus, chapter 1. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, I'm not suggesting that every rich church or every rich pastor teaches false doctrine. I'm simply pointing out the explicit link that Bible itself makes between greed for money and false teaching. That link can probably work in both directions. Either a Christian leader can deliberately deceive people in order to make money, or they can start to get money, and in order to keep it and gain more, they begin to omit the more uncomfortable parts of Scripture, shade the Scriptures here and there, be a bit clumsy in the interpretation of biblical texts, start introducing a few theories and ideas of their own, and so deceive and be deceived. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus gives a series of blessings and woes. And he says this in verse 26, And I often have to remind myself of this when too many people start to tell me how much they enjoy my sermons. Jesus says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I've got to keep on checking. Am I faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God, or am I just sticking to the nice bits and less controversial bits for dishonest gain, whether that's financial gain or to gain approval. Now, the Apostle Paul overcame the danger of peddling the gospel by simply using his full-time job as his main source of income. Paul made tents for a living, and so he was quite happy to make money from that business during the day and to present the gospel free of charge after hours. On some occasions, he was happy to receive money from churches so that he could work full-time for the gospel, but at other times he worked with his own hands. And whatever the case, he made it his practice not to receive financial support from those in a new town where he was preaching the gospel for the first time, he didn't want his motives to be questioned, but he would accept finances from established churches where he had been previously uh, to be able to preach the gospel free of charge in a new town. I might have gone on a bit of a tangent here. What's the bottom line for us? If you're a Christian leader, make sure that your ministry is about giving, not getting, whether that's money or a sense of self-worth or the admiration of others. And if you're a congregation member, don't be tricked into the false idea that bigger and better and newer and smarter is a sign of God's blessing. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus dictates letters to seven churches in Asia. And it's so interesting. He writes to the church in Laodicea and he says, You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched 
pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He writes to the church in Smyrna and he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. The one church thought that they were rich, but they were poor. And the one church thought that they were poor, but they were rich. Christianity isn't about getting. It's about giving. Thirdly, in terms of the manner of an elder's work, not lauding, but modelling. Verse 3, not lauding it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In other words, Peter is warning here about the danger of power. Peter will go on to speak about humility in a few verses' time, and we'll come to that next week. But I think he's remembering the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, then, that there is a link between these three sets of contrasts. One of the antidotes to a sense of power within the Christian ministry is what Peter mentioned in the last contrast, an eagerness to serve, a humble, secret service of others that takes place when no one else is watching, and also a striving, in the words of Paul to Timothy, to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We've looked at the calling of an elder, the manner in which an elder is to work out that calling. Let's look thirdly and finally at an elder's motivation. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Christian service and pastoral work is hard it can be emotionally draining. It can be downright dangerous. Remember that Peter is writing to a church that is about to face persecution. Many of the elders to whom he writes are going to be imprisoned and even put to death. And so Peter points elders and all of us to what is the main theme of his letter. Do you remember what it is? It's been so many weeks since we've stated it. After suffering, glory. Peter states this principle twice in this passage. In verse 1, he describes himself as a martyr of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. After suffering, glory. And then again in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I'm not sure that that necessarily is a reward for service or anything more than what Peter has already described in chapter 1, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Either way, all Christians, but particularly Christian leaders, need to heed what Peter said back in chapter 1. 
set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is what is to motivate the work of an elder. As one writer puts it, what keeps them going is not the love of money or the love of power. What keeps them going is that when the chief shepherd comes, he is going to call us to account and say, did you feed my sheep? Were you vigilant over the souls of my sheep? Did you seek my lost sheep? Did you guard the deposit of my truth? Did you stand watch against the wolves? Did you love my flock? Notice again then that this can work as a great antidote against lording it over others or seeking the approval of others. Ultimately, pastors and Christian workers work for an audience of one. I heard about an old missionary couple who'd been working in Africa for decades and they were returning to New York City to retire. They had no pension. They'd spent years away from their family. They were feeling a little sad and disappointed. And it just so happened that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. He'd travelled first class, of course, while they were in third class. And when the ship docked, this elderly missionary couple watched while President Roosevelt went first down the gangplank. A band was there to meet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were all there. And an hour later, the elderly couple were allowed to disembark and went down the gangplank. There was no one there to meet them. They caught a taxi home. And that night, the husband found himself complaining to God. He said, my wife and I have served you in Africa for 20 years. We've given up everything. I can't see many results from a lifetime of service. The president spends two weeks in Africa shooting animals, and when he gets home, the whole nation throws a party for him. It's not fair, Lord. And in his heart, this man heard God say to him, Ah, yes, but remember, you're not home yet. When Christian service gets difficult, when it gets dangerous, when it becomes exhausting, we fix our spiritual eyes on things above, not on earthly things. We set our hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and we keep going in order to hear him say one day, well done, good and faithful servant.